behavior in the nurse's eyes was uh, tangible. Like you could look at her eyes and tell that she was very concerned with what I had just said. I've been in a few different hospital rooms in my life, uh, some of them getting really, really bad news, some of them getting mediocre news, some of those just being annoyed because I had to show up at the ER because my mom said I had to. Uh, apparently concussions are a big deal. But this time I was talking to the nurse and I looked at her, I had said something and she looked back at me uh, with a little mix of a cocktail maybe of horror, surprise, and just astonishment, which to be fair, she shouldn't have. Uh, we were in the hospital in Katy, Texas, uh, picking up Caden uh, at the hospital. So we were sitting there, and we were hanging out at the hospital bed. Uh, they had just brought in the paperwork that said, what are you going to name your child? Anybody been in that room? Or they bring out that paperwork. And as they said it in front of me, a novel thought came into my brain, because I don't know why I've never thought this before. We'd already named a child. It wasn't my first time doing this. But when the blank was there, there was one blank, not first and last name. It was just one blank. And for some reason, it clicked in my head uh, in a way that it hadn't before. You can actually name your child whatever you want. Like anything. Like it doesn't have to be two names. It doesn't have to be three names. It doesn't have to be four names. It could literally be whatever you want to put on that paper. They walk out and are forever known as. And for some reason, I'm, I don't know, 28-year-old, 29-year-old at this point, And I'm like, huh. So could I call him Superman? And she looked at me like I had just called him Superman and tattooed it on the newborn child. She looked back with dead serious eyes. Just remember, whatever you call him, he has to live with for the rest of his life. And she really killed the vibe. Like, it was all of a sudden, I was happy, and then she was very, very serious with horror. Like, this dude better not name this child Superman. Uh, when it came time to name our church, uh, names are important. Uh, when it came time to name our church, uh, Missio Day, uh, 2008, we were naming the community that would eventually birth out this church that we're a part of now, um, Missio Day Communities. It wasn't named that first. The first name we gave it at uh, the early days was, uh, Josh and Angela, you guys are around, do you remember? Tempe City Church. Oh, we got both sides. See that? We got it in stereo. Tempe City Church. Uh, all good churches at that point had a first, middle, and last name. That's just how you rolled. Um, and so we were in the city of, we were in Tempe. It was a city, and we were a church. Creative as all get out at 26 and 27 while we were planting this church. Uh, and so we called Tempe City Church. But it wasn't long into planting the church that we realized that uh, what God was doing wasn't just going to be in one geographic area. But if God actually did what we were praying he would do, that all throughout the East Valley and beyond, that little communities of servant missionaries would be formed, right? These disciple-making communities that would eventually spread out to other cities, Tempe City Church wouldn't really work. And so we asked the question, all right, well, what else do we want to name ourselves? Like, what else would get at, like, what we really want to be known at for the rest of our lives if we're called something? We didn't realize, disclosure, that we could have just changed the first name of the church for every single city that we went into next, and then we would have been completely fine. Uh, that epiphany didn't come for, like, another eight years. And so we completely remixed it and said, if we want to be known for something, we want it to be that we are communities of men, women, and children who are on the mission of God. And the Latin term for mission of God is missio Dei. 
And so if you've ever wondered, what is that name? That's what it means. It's the Latin word, mission of God, or the sending God. That God has been and will be on a redemptive mission to restore and reconcile all of creation. And we're communities of people who together take up our role in that story. That's who we are. And so that's all across. If you've tracked with Missio for any amount of time, uh, you've seen these symbols that this tells the true story of the world. And each of those circles, as Josh designed them, that gold represents the reign of God in every single act of the story. And when you get to the second to the last arrow, uh, that one is going forward. It's the church. And so we literally have that in absolutely everything we do. Missio Day communities, that M, Missio, D, Day, D-E-I. And we're communities who believe that, but we're in different cities. And so we have Missio de Mesa, Missio de Tempe, Missio de Phoenix, God willing, Missio de whatever else he wants to send us to next. We'll be faithful where we're at, and if he sends us elsewhere, we'll go there too. Even down to our kids, if you see it everywhere that you see it, that MD, the kids who live their role in the Missio Day. So if you've never seen that before, that's how that unpacks together. Uh, that's not just for brand recognition, though. That's because we want to be faithful to the role God's given us in his story. And we wanted that to permeate everything we do. So when we come to today's teaching on the mission of God, uh, there is literally just so much good stuff that we could say. So I've been working to hone it in and just say, all right, what parts are important for us today? Uh, And then I can send you some other resources on other parts of the mission of God. Because we want to be men, women, and children who live into the name that God's given us. Uh, It's not Superman. But as participants in his story, we have to know what that is and what the mission he's even called and sent us on is in the first place. Let me pray, and then we're going to jump into Colossians 1. Jesus, uh, we're grateful that we get to be here. Uh, We're grateful that you're the kind of king that calls us into a story. Uh, We're grateful for the work you've done to redeem and reconcile. We're grateful that you've pulled us out of the various places we were to bring us together into one community by the power of your spirit. It's mind-blowing. And as we gather here tonight, we pray that we would uh, open up our hearts and our posture to hearing the good news again, to remember what it is that you're up to in this world and be mesmerized by the fact that you invite us to play a role in that. Would grace startle us again with the the majesty of what you're doing, the mystery of it all, and the mission that we've been sent on come together in a more full way tonight as we sit in this. And so we love you, and we're so glad that you meet here with us. Uh, Would you open up the word to us now? We ask this in your name and by the power of your spirit. Amen. It starts off like this, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. As God has done that, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Uh, Look at me real quick, and we're gonna break this down. If you write in your Bible, feel free to highlight, take some notes. Uh, That is a big sentence because what Paul's doing is he's bringing in language. Remember last year when we went through the whole story of God, we talked about the Exodus and how God had brought Israel out of Egypt, out from underneath the power of the military might and the economic security of Egypt, out of the oppression that they couldn't worship the true and living God, that God had come and rescued Israel out of that and brought them into something new, a life where they could live and serve and joyfully be who God had always intended them to be, not oppressed by the Pharaoh, but under the flourishing power of God. 
And so what Paul's doing is he's bringing that language into this story. He's saying that redemption is mind-blowing. And it's his power on display. There was two ways to redeem somebody. Uh, the first way, and I just learned this this year, I always thought there was only one way, and that was, maybe you've heard this, to buy back something that was already given to someone else. So you'd redeem something by paying the money. It's kind of like an uh, old school pawn system, right, where somebody had your stuff and you had to go pay them to get it back. And that's one way of looking at redemption, that you would come and you would pay a price, and they'd be like, yep, that's enough, and then you get it back. Uh, that always kind of bothered me because uh, that's the, one of the major metaphors for how God has rescued his people is redemption. I'm like, yo, God didn't pay anybody anything. Like, it wasn't like Satan had, like, you know, people, and he's like, yo, give me all your money. And God's like, oh, I guess I got to. Here you go. Here's my son. And then Satan's like, all right, I'll let him go. That's not the storyline of our Bible. That one bothered me. But there's a second way that I was made aware of this year that makes a whole lot more sense. And that was uh, you brought you had a massive demonstration of power and the other person just let you go. So imagine that same scenario. You go into the pawn shop if you've ever used one. You don't want to do this. as illegal, uh, but it's going to stick with the metaphor for me. So you go into the pawn shop and the guy's got your laptop and you're like, yeah, I want my laptop back. And he's like, no, I'm not giving it back unless you pay me. And then you're like, hold on one second. And then you bring your three older brothers in with you who are all diesel, right? And they all come and stand right behind you and they're all like, give him back his laptop. And the guy that owns the shop's like, all right, I don't want trouble. Here you go. You can have it back. Just walk away. You show a demonstration of power that you are superior, that you are mighty. And the other person just goes, here, take it back. Which makes a whole lot more sense when we look at how uh, God demonstrated that both in the Exodus and at the cross, isn't it? That he had a mighty display of power, right? All those plagues and the killing of the firstborn son and says, yes, this is who I am as God. Therefore, give him back. And he's like, yeah, take your, take your kids, take Israel. That way made a whole lot more sense to me. So that picture of redemption, that God is mighty to rescue. Let's keep reading. If you say, this sounds really familiar, it should. We read it two weeks ago when we talked about the majesty of God. This is going to be all three of them. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority. All things have been created through him and for him. You want to talk about majesty? You want to talk about mind-blowing majesty, right? God is the one who created the king that you would bow down to. He stands above all authorities, all powers, all rulers. He is the majestic one. And if you want to hear 40 minutes on that, Look for our sermon on the majesty of God. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the pre supremacy. Uh, you want to enter into mystery a little bit? Everything that exists, exists in Jesus. Now, when you want to explain that to me, I'll, I'll wait. Right? All things hold together in him. Talk about another mind-bending mystery. How does that work? I don't get it. Including the mystery that that God who is majestic and mysterious wants to invite us to play a role in his story. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit tonight when we look at the mission of God. What's the purpose that God has for all of this? I'm going to keep reading. 
For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that is Jesus, and through him, that is Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Uh, Look up at me. If we're going to talk about the mission of God, we have to come back to two words that will be used consistently throughout the story. The first is redemption. The second is reconciliation. Uh, One author says this. He says, the whole Bible, the Bible gives us the story of God's mission through God's people in their engagement with God's world for the sake of the whole of God's creation. Uh, The book that that comes from is about 600 pages, so you can thank me for finding that quote. Uh, The point of it is that the whole entire narrative of Scripture holds together on the thread that God is up to something in this world. When you read your Bible, it starts with the words what? In the beginning. And it ends in the last few verses, and they'll reign forever and ever. Uh, What kind of book is that? That's a narrative. That's a story. That's telling it starts here, it's going to end here, and everything in the middle. It is an epic novel. It is an epic story. It is the telling of creation in historic fact through with what God's doing in creation all the way through to new creation. And so we can't talk about this mission of God just from one verse because when you just read redemption and reconciliation, we're like, to what? From what? Why? I don't get it. And this is why we use those arrows so often. And so what I want you to do is to think through. I'm going to tell this story to us through the lens of God with a purpose. Right? When we think mission, just don't think like uh, military objectives and things to do. Although that can work too because uh, there's a purpose for them being there. But you can think about uh, a million other non-militaristic functions of the word. This is the purpose for which he is doing something. That God has an intention in his mind, a direction he is leading things towards. He has a mission. And we as his people get to be caught up in that. So you guys might have seen these things before. In the first act of the story, this is going to be your whole Bible. I'll break it down for you too. One through two. In the first act of the story, we see God who comes down and creates everything, right? He comes to what we see is a mess of water and darkness and chaos, and he comes down with his spirit to create order and structure out of that. And so this unfolding story tells of the different days of creation. And the point of those stories isn't so much to answer all of our questions for our scientific minds, but it's to say, this is the way in which God has formed absolutely everything. This is his world. Everything that exists was made through him. And day one, day two, day three, and then at the, at the center of that creation, after he's brought order out of the chaos, he puts human beings in the middle of the garden. Adam and Eve, and he gives them the function, the role to bear his image, to be his royal ambassadors in creation, to develop all its hidden potentials. You read Genesis 1:25, and it tells us they were called to be the ones who steward all the hidden potentials of his creation. A beautiful mandate. And this would be accomplished as they trusted him and walked with him And so God would come down in the cool of the day and he'd be like, hey, let's take a walk. Let's talk about this life that you're now living. A beautiful imagery of human beings right with God, right with one another, 
right with creation, and even right with themselves. All of those things working the way they were intended to. Adam and Eve as co-laborers cultivating creation together. But they're going to have a choice. Did they want to follow the way that God had lined up? Would they come under his authority or would they choose to do things their own way? And in the story, this is represented by that tree that we call the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That human beings had the choice to make a decision. Do I want to trust God and what he says or do I want to take my own way? Am I going to do things my way and define for myself what right and wrong is? I know what God said, but here's what I want. And in the second act of the story, we see that there is a rebellion. A rebellion and the subsequent fallout from that. That human beings choose to eat from the tree and say, we want to decide for ourselves what right and wrong is. We want to do things our way. God, we know what you said, but we actually don't want to just be uh, in your image. We want to be you. Like we want to be like God. It wasn't enough to be in his image, but under him, they said we want to be him. And so as a result of that, we see all of creation is plunged under a curse. That God's intention for the flourishing of his creation is subverted by the humans that were meant to care for it. Instead, they've now polluted it. They brought evil and disruption, the seeds of disease and oppression and abuse. In just one chapter, we'll see murder. All of that brought in because people said, we don't want to do things your way, God. We want to do things our way. And there was a separation that took place. All those same ways that humans were at peace before. So if you take it, look this way, that they were doing all right and they were uh, at peace with God. They were at peace with each other, right? They had those human relationships going good. They were at peace with creation. There's the ground. They're doing good there. And even with themselves, all of those all of those relationships are fractured in this rebellion. All of a sudden, they're separated from God because they've chosen to live outside his good reign. Immediately, Adam and Eve start blaming each other, right? God comes down and says, hey, where you at? And he's like, yo, 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 we're naked, so we hid. And he's like, who told you you were naked? And he's like, well, let me tell you a story. That woman that you gave me, right? He's not even blaming the woman, he's blaming God. That, that woman that you gave me gave me a fruit and I ate it. And then he's like, all right, what'd you do? Well, that snake that you put in the garden tricked me and I ate it. When at the core of it was a choice to decide for themselves what was right and wrong. There's a curse that comes under creation. All of a sudden creation doesn't work the way it's supposed to anymore. There's gonna be thorns, work is gonna be hard. The ordering of relationships is gonna be so tricky. And human beings begin to feel shame, right? They take fig leaves and start wrapping it around themselves, trying to hide the fact that they were no longer uh, carrying that beautiful, beautiful innocence that was there. But instead they were now devastated by the effects of the fall, this redemption. And then Genesis three through 11 gives us the fallout of that, where there's just this spiral that goes downhill. But God is still faithful. Genesis 3.15, if you're taking notes in there, God makes a promise that one day he will send a rescuer who will crush the serpent's head. And yes, that snake's gonna get at his heel, but he's gonna crush his head. One day someone would come who would make right what would now had been broken. And so God's mission is now, right, starts off at this point to restore, to redeem, and to reconcile that which was broken by humanity's rebellion. God loves his creation so much that even in the wake of this choice, he doesn't wipe them off the face of the earth and say, all right, I don't want anything to do with these messed up people. 
but instead he says, I'm going to make a way for these messed up people to be made whole once again. We're gonna have fast forward just a little bit. And so the next act of the story is the promise. And this is your Bible from Genesis 12 to Malachi 4. This tells the unfolding of God's promise, starting with one man named Abram, that through you, I'm gonna make a, be a blessing to the nations. Remember, the nations are wicked, they're evil, they're against God. And God says, hey, I love them so much that I'm gonna take you, one nation, be especially kind to you so that you can show off my kindness to the rest of the world. Like, I want you to be the ones through whom all the nations are blessed. God's people have always been a so that people. God always had an intention, even in choosing Israel, that they would be the, the conduit through which his blessing went out to all people. It wasn't that, hey, I like you most, and so I'm just going to focus on you. It's I'm going to do this for you so that you can focus this towards everyone else and show them what it looks like for people to live under the reign of God, ordering things wisely in his world. And so we call this promise because God makes this promise, but it is a long road of redemption. About three quarters of your Bible is spent in this act of the story. And honestly, when you're reading it, things get kind of confusing because there's, uh, there's plots, there's subplots, there's subplots to the subplots, there's subplots to the subplots to the subplots. It's kind of like reading Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings and eventually you're just like, I don't know what's going on anymore, I'm done. Eventually I'm like, I'm not, I don't know what's going on anymore, I'm done. And sometimes we approach our Bible that way. But there is a lot of really, really important things that take place in here as God's people struggle to be faithful to the covenant or the promise God had made with them, them failing in that, but God still being faithful. Israel, the nation that formed out of that, uh, was not always faithful. Um, one author writes that they were kind of like a postman who took all the mail but then forgot they were supposed to give it back out. And so they kept all the mail for themselves. That'd be really weird, right? If your mailman or mailwoman was going around and she was like, oh, this isn't for you. No, no, you're like, it's in the basket. I see my package, Amazon, please give it to me. Like, and no, no, it's not for you, it's for me, right? And she just hoarded all the stuff. You'd be like, that lady is not being very uh, faithful to her vocation or she stinks at her job, right? Depending on where your language flows. That was what Israel was like in some ways. They were called to be a conduit of blessing out to the many, but instead they didn't do it. And so you're left wondering the pages of your Old Testament with the promised rescuer, this king that they had been waiting for, the one who the prophets had called out saying, there will be a king who comes back to make it right. God is still absolutely doing what he said he would do. He will restore and renew and reconcile and redeem. He will do that. He demonstrates it in different pockets with Israel. But for all of creation, we don't see it happen. And at the end of Malachi 4, it goes quiet for hundreds of years. Until we get to the book of Matthew in our Bible. And this is a story that we call that Jesus comes. And one way to look at it is that, that he comes back down. And God sends his very own son because he loves the world so much. He sends his son who announces good news, the kingdom of God is here. Good news, that promised Messiah, that deliverer, that one that you've been waiting for. Uh, God being on his redemptive mission through story that's finally taking place. I'm finally here. I'm gonna set things right. I am the one that the prophets have told of. And then he lives his life in such a way that he demonstrates that good news is here with signs and miracles. Uh, announcing good news and then backing that up with the way he lived, forming together a new family, right? These disciples who followed him to learn how to live into the world the way that he called a kingdom life. 
but he wasn't the mighty military power that everybody was looking for. And so Israel, rightly so, was a little confused. They're like, wait a second, we've read all the books, right? Like all of our Bible is all this part, and none of that looks like a Jewish carpenter on the backside of a desert from a no-name town. Like, I'm confused. I thought you were going to come in and just wipe out the Romans. We wanted you to come in and wipe out the Romans and set us back. I thought that's what this was about. But Jesus, at every turn of the story in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, redefines their expectations and announces good news. That kingdom that you're waiting for has broken in right now, and it is for anybody who wants to believe. Jewish people, you're welcome. You need to repent, change your thinking, and believe this good news. People that didn't even think or consider, they were so messed up. They're like, man, I'm so far outside of all the 600 and some laws that God gave the people of Israel. Like, I don't even have a shot at this thing. I don't even have a welcome. And Jesus says, no, 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 you're welcome at the table too. My grace is enough for anyone who wants to return to the way of Jesus. Like, come in, you're welcome at my table. And he perfectly demonstrates what it looks like when someone is dependent on the Spirit of God, submitted to the will of the Father and practicing that out in this very broken world. Long story short, he ticks off the religious people and the Romans enough that he gets murdered. And so just like there was a tree at the beginning and a tree of life, there's now a tree of death where Jesus is hung. And for three days, he's dead. But in a shocking turn of events that nobody saw coming, uh, he resurrects, right? He comes back from the dead. He's not just reincarnated or reimagined or everybody had a massive hallucination because they were all tripping. But in fact, he came back and was resurrected and said, hey, good news. Like God's going to do in me, for the whole world what he did in me this day, right? On the third day when he resurrected, new creation broke in in a fresh way. And the beginning what they call the first fruits of the dead, if you caught that in there. The power of the resurrection brought something brand new into the world that we see God was on his mission through every act of the story. And then he sends his spirit on Pentecost and this little group of believers starts the story forward in the act that we'll call the church. And that's basically your New Testament, a lot of it, the epistles, all that stuff. And that's the act of the story that we find ourselves into, that the people of God, these communities of God, took up their role in this story to be people who were redeemed and who were reconciled, who then lived all of their lives out of that new identity, that they were made right with God and that they were God's new humanity, yes, even in the midst of a messed up world. Yes, even in the midst of a world that was broken. Yes, even in the midst of a world that hadn't yet been made right. They were still these people. They were now joined up into the mission of God. See, God had always been bringing restoration. He had always been redeeming. He had always been reconciling. But now these people, these men and women, filled with the very spirit of God in these small communities scattered throughout the Middle East, North Africa, and scattering throughout the known world all said, hey, we believe that to be true and we want to orient all of our lives around that reality. Now, before that sounds too perfect, they were not perfect. Read uh, 1 Corinthians, you see some jacked up stuff. Read Colossians, read any book you want to. Uh, Paul's going to go on from here where it seems all beautiful and tell him, now here, because of who Jesus is, here's how you ought to live. And there's some stuff that he has to work through. But they did it because they realized that they were the people of God called to play a role in the story of God. And there's something beautiful that took place. 
And the story doesn't end there, though. Just kind of like, hey, cool, so don't mess it up and have fun. When does it end? Just keeps going. Don't worry about it. But there's actually an end to the story. Our next series is going to be out of the book of Revelation a little bit. Um, and then I think I'll end up teaching a whole sermon, just the whole book of Revelation in one shot because I had fun going through it all, and I think I could do it just in a longer sermon, but we can do it. Um, but there's an end of the story that we call the restoration. And you see this a lot in the book of Revelation, talking about, especially at the end of the book, how things will end, this restoration where God reunites and reconciles uh, not just human beings in a way to him, but all of creation, heaven and earth, back together. At the end of the story, we see a city coming out of the sky and God saying, behold, I'm making all things new and my dwelling is now with humans. I'm gonna be their God, they're gonna be my people and they will reign forever with him. And it says, everyone who bowed their knee to King Jesus and just says, I worship you, you're, you're my God, you're my King, you're the Lord, I believe this story. I don't always get it right, but I trust in you, and that's what faith is, gets to be a part of that restored creation forever. But everybody who says, I'm gonna do it my way. I don't need you, God. I wanna do things my way. I think I can got this better than you. They will spend eternity separated. They get judged for that, and then they're separated from God because they wanted nothing to do with them in this life. They're not gonna want anything to do with them in the restoration. And so there's these two pathways that at the end it comes to but this beautiful picture of reconciliation. And again, at the very end of the story, we see the tree of life popping back up. And there's not a tree of knowledge of good and evil because the potential for evil polluting God's good creation is gone. Of abuses coming back in, it's gone. Of disease coming in and wreaking havoc in creation, it's gone. And humans get to continue on that creation project to cultivate all its hidden potentials, to worship God, to enjoy relationship with each other, to enjoy right relationship together. Like that gets to take place for all eternity. And that's what God has been doing since the beginning. He has always been about the flourishing of his creation and the people who are a part of it. And when that gets disrupted in the rebellion, he has to make that plan then to redeem and reconcile. And that's what we mean when we say the mission of God, that God has a purpose to redeem and reconcile a people for the flourishing of his creation. And so when we read in Colossians that Jesus, through Jesus, he's the center of that story, Jesus, through him, God was reconciling all that back to himself. That's the mission that Paul's talking about. He'll go on in the next few verses to say, uh, this is the gospel that's been preached to every creation under earth. It's the gospel that I'm a servant of. I have a role to play in that story, and so do you. And he shows the Colossians what that looks like through the rest of the book. Paul's books always break down between what's true and then what they're to do. It's always that way. He always starts off, here's what's true, good news. And then here's what you're supposed to do in light of that good news. Every book of Paul, you can break it down that way. Whew, that's a lot. But I don't want us to miss any of that because all of that is very important for us today as we take up our role in God's story. Chris Wright again says this. He says, it's not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, God's mission, as we just defined it. What does that mean? It means that what we do together as a community, God wasn't like, yo, I got all these people together. What am I gonna do? They need a hobby. I know, let's call it mission and send them out to do some cool stuff around the world. That's not what he was doing. 
In fact, God was in creation from the beginning on through seeking. I want to seek the flourishing, the justice, the wholeness, the peace, the shalom of all this planet, the world that I've created, and the human beings in it. And I want human beings to partner with me to cultivate all the hidden potentials of this creation, to flourish, to enjoy me, to enjoy one another, enjoy all the stuff I've created. But then when human beings rebelled, he said, all right, well, now I need to fight, and I'm going to buy that back. I'm going to get that back. I'm going to display my power, and I'm going to reunite what was severed in that rebellion. And our Bible is nothing less than claiming to be the true story of how that's taking place. And so we came to an act in the story where we're the ones who carry on. The calling of the church is so much more than some songs and a sermon on a Sunday that you may or may not like. The calling of church is to be the new humanity who embody God's mission right now until the day that he returns, which is mind-blowing. And I want it to seem big because it is. Coming out of that, though, I was praying through and just thinking, all right, God, what do you want us to do with that? Like, what does that have to do with my job tomorrow, with the fact that I'm a dad, I'm a husband? What does it have to do for those that are in second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade? Because they're implicated in this as well. Uh, What does that mean for me? I'm single. What does that mean for me? I'm a grandparent. What does that mean for me? I'm retired. What does that mean for me? I'm in a job I hate and I don't even like. What does that mean for me? I have my family falling apart. What does that mean for me? I'm in an addiction. What does that mean for me? Because those are all the different places that we find ourselves And hear this, God is big enough to hold all that together. He is majestic. I get it's mysterious, but you get to be a part of his mission too. So if you're heading to school tomorrow, not tomorrow because it's President's Day, if you're heading to school on Tuesday, you get to play a role in that story too. If you head to work tomorrow, if you head on vacation tomorrow, it's true for you as well. This is not one of those uh, optional opt-in things that you may or may not like to accept. This is what God's up to. And he's being kind to us to invite us into that, which is brilliant. But the first thing that I have for us is a reminder. The first thing I want to remind us is that there's an urgency for us to take up our role in God's story. I use the word urgency on purpose. Uh, Sometimes in our culture, we have the idea that God's doing what God's going to do. Let him roll. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And then eventually someday I'll kind of make it over to what he's up to and join him in that. But first, I got some other stuff I want to do or experience first. Or we think like, well, first I need to secure my house I want, the family I want, the car I want, the job I want. And guess what? If that's the route you're going, you're always going to have another I want because that's actually what your God is. That's what you want to worship. But when God is our God, there is a beauty and an urgency that invites us into his story. Uh, Hear this, I am not saying an anxiety. There is a difference between urgency and anxiety. Anxiety is my heart's racing. I don't know what to do. I feel really nervous. Oh goodness, what am I gonna, like some of you probably have a better definition of anxiety. That's my clinical one, Um, where you just feel bad and you need to do something really big. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying in first priority in our life, as we become a community together, there is an urgency for us to take up our role in God's story. And whatever it is that we start to think, but first I want to blank and then I'll, fully, then I'll fully take up that role or then I'll press in on that. I would encourage you to consider why is that thing so much more important than the God who loves you and wants what's good for you and invites you into his story? A fam, there is an urgency God is God. 
God has moved this story throughout all of creation, um, and he will continue to do so. So you're not going to mess up his plans if you're not faithful. But your experience of him and life under him will be drastically different if it's lived with him or if you're trying to live above him and dictate what he can do or when he's allowed to tell you what to do. Uh, The second thing, second reminder, that we are a witnessing community. Uh, Fundamentally, the church as we sit underneath here as a little community of Missio Dei Mesa, we are fundamentally witnesses of the good news of Jesus and all that he's doing. Uh, That has both intention, so there are times when we're very intentional. Can I just tell you about the good news of Jesus? And there's times when our life has a dimension of that. Like maybe it's your marriage or the way you're dating tells of the goodness of God. Or the way that you do your job with excellence speaks of God's love for all of his creation. There's a million different ways that this can play out. But fundamentally, our lives together do tell a story about God. We are a community that witnesses back to the events of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but also to what he will one day do. Uh, One way to look at it is that our, our shared life as we witness this together, whether verbally in declaration or physically with demonstration, is that we're a small foretaste of what's coming one day in the restoration. It's going to be better than than we ever imagined. Uh, Kenzie's been going through the story of God, um, leading through, being gone through an act at a time. And to get when we got to the final act of the story, uh, the restoration, she got to do that one at uh, a hotel, right? She went to the Westin with Kaylee Ann, rooftop pool in Tempe. Uh, it's a newer hotel. It's COVID, so it was cheaper. Um, but we sent her there. Don't worry, it was still excellent. It was amazing. Um, and they got to go out to dinner and have a good experience. And so she knew she was coming to the end of the story. She didn't know what the experience would be. And so we wanted to highlight in that that, hey, it's going to be better than what you imagined. So when you just got ready for dinner, we actually packed a bag for you. And you're going away for a night at a fancy hotel that's going to be a blast. To keep in your mind and your imagination, whatever I think is coming, it's going to be great. But guess what? At the restoration, it's going to be even better. Like being fully known and loved and being able to experience God's love for you in a way that you never have will be mind-blowing. Being able to enter into relationships and not feel that anxiety or that tension or that frustration with other humans, but actually having true peace, like that's gonna be mind-blowing. Being able to be at peace with ourselves and feel shalom like we ourselves are not racked by any uh, feelings of shame or guilt, but fully able to experience what God says is already true about us, that we're forgiven, but that'll be a fresh experience in full at that point. It's going to be mind-blowing. It's going to be better than we imagined. But we get to witness to that now. And the last thing is that we are a community who works with God, not for him. And I don't want us to miss that. Uh, Because, why does that matter? Because I have watched in the last 13 years of my life as this reality of God's mission that he's calling us into and sending us out on, that there's something that can happen along the way where we're drawn in by God's love for us. We experience that, and it's incredible. And then we hear about this work that there is to do, and hear this, there is work to do, but there's a drastic difference if we think that we have to do it for God, and that's kind of the image we're going on our own, but we're doing these things for you, God, which is a separation from presence, which is what God always wanted to bring, or We're called into that mission with God. 
Like we walk in step with God himself. And there's communion and joy and fellowship and life that happens as we go, not just one day at the end. Do you wonder why so many Christians are known for being cranky? And some other words, um, cranky, really cranky, very, very cranky. Um, Why are they known for that? Because many of them have forgotten that they walk with God and no longer find joy in his presence, but instead have come up with a task list they're supposed to be doing for God, many of which are good things. Many of which are maybe even be the right things, but they stop doing them with and they start doing them for and then grow resentful. I don't want that to be said of us. Yes, I want us to be faithful, to be agents of reconciliation in Mesa. Yes, I want us to experience redemption and invite others to do the same. Absolutely. Yes, I want us starting businesses that lead to the wholeness of our city. Yes, I want us to be employees who endure pretty crappy working conditions so that we can be our faithful gospel witness to where God's called us. That's sometimes the calling. Yes, I want us to be in and among people who are broken, who may wound us, who may damage our feelings, right? Who may hurt our butts. When we walk with God, it's drastically different than when we think we walk alone, but we're doing this for God. Believe me, that will hold you for a little while where you'll take all the sacrifice because I'm doing it for God. God doesn't need you to do it for him. He did it for you and then he wants to do it with you. So I've got a few prayers for us on the screen. And they focus on some of those different areas. And I'm gonna give us just a few minutes and as you look at them, maybe the spirit wants to draw your attention to one of them. They're all prayers that I pray regularly. One's not better than the other one. But as you think about the beauty of what God's doing in and throughout creation, uh, what you see what he's doing throughout the story, when you see the intricacies of how his mission has been playing out for millennia, be drawn up in the wonder that he wants to do this with you. First prayer, Father, remind me of your love for me and for creation. Uh, Maybe you just need to focus on that redemption and reconciliation. Like, God, I need to remember that's for me. And you want that for the whole world. Just just overwhelm, let that wash over me. Uh, Jesus, where are you at work, in my home or in my hood? And how can I join you in that? There's different spheres where we participate in the mission of God. For some of us, it's starting a church. For some of us, it's praying for our spouse. For some of us, it's going to the nations. For some of us, it's in the quiet of the day, praying through your neighborhood. I don't know what the next step is for you, but he does. Which leads to the third prayer, spirit, what's the next step in following you? And maybe it's a manifestation of his power and his presence. And hear this. You might pray this and not hear an answer today. I encourage you to keep praying it. Let me give you just a moment to think through and see if the Spirit would have one of these for you. As the Spirit presses on us, as Jesus gently invites us to follow him, as the Father reminds us again of the love that has driven this whole entire mission, not pragmatism, Uh, Not cynicism, but love that has motivated him throughout the mission. I'm going to invite you to come to the table. David, you can come back up and get your music ready. But as we sing this next song, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you up to the table. 
And again, maybe one of these three, the Spirit will highlight it because we see all three at the table. Uh, The first at the table, we see redemption. We see Jesus with a mighty demonstration of power and might, defeating Satan, sin, death, evil, oppression, once and for all, not with a tank or with a bomb, but with his broken body. And that was his display of power to bring us back to the table, to reunite heaven and earth, to reunite humans again with their God. At the table, we see reconciliation, uh, that with that broken body and the blood that poured out, he brought together a people who are very distinct and different and yet dearly loved. And so we come to the table together. Uh, We'll walk and we'll take a piece of the bread, take some of the juice, go back to your seat and receive that. But as you do that, everybody that's taking it is in a different place in their life. They're experiencing different things. There's different degrees to which we are actually walking in faithfulness. But he holds us together as one family because it's what he's done, not what we do, that works out the reconciliation. And then last, at the table, we remind, we have receive a reminder of God's present with us. They're physical elements for a reason. Uh, Jesus came and lived and died. This world is a real place. His salvation is also real. It takes place in this world that he created. And so we take the physical element of the bread, the physical element of the juice, and remember that God is with us as real as that bread and that juice as it fills us, his spirit also does. And so we take this in remembrance of him. Will you